cut to the chase and get straight to the point and the ongoing crisis at Surrey Memorial Hospital and what's situation critical within the Fraser Health Authority. As we've been talking about for weeks now, Surrey Memorial Hospital has been hitting a boiling point. First, there was that petition signed by almost 35 ER doctors who claim the hospital is in crisis mode and that patient safety is at risk. The doctor that was leading that charge is Dr. Urban Urbane Ip who talked about how stressful and critical the situation is at Surrey Memorial and pointed, the, and pointed the finger directly at the top. I want Fraser Health, the leadership, be transparent with the public and say, look, we do have trouble. We understand that we are doing our best. Be patient with us. If my family gets sick, I know if I send them to the hospital and they need to be admitted to hospital, there might not be anybody to take care of them for the first 48 to 72 hours because of the hospital's shortage. Dr. Ip went on to say that he had concerns about sending his own family to Surrey Memorial Hospital, and that's very telling when an ER physician says something like that. Well, since then, a group of OBGYNs has added their voice, saying they have patients who can't get the surgeries they need, and that in one case, a newborn died because they couldn't get the care they needed. BC's chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe, was on the Mike Smith Show this morning where she was asked directly about this case. A a lack of resources that may have led to the death of an infant. Chief coroner, I'm just wondering if if this has been brought to your attention or is that something that would set off some alarm bells for you that you would investigate? Every child of a death in this province has to be reported to my office. So that death uh, will have been reported to my office, and we will be investigating. And we certainly will uh, speak to the parents. We will speak to the attending physician. We will gather the medical records, um, and we will try to establish the cause of death. It is oftentimes more complicated um, than a clip uh, on the the radio can can provide in terms of context. But absolutely, we will be investigating that death, and that was that is within our jurisdiction to investigate. Now, Surrey Memorial isn't the only hospital facing this situation. Now, doctors at Royal Columbian and Eagle Ridge are saying they're facing severe delays getting patients the help they need. Let's in. Let's bring in Dr. Berinder Narang, uh, who has worked at Surrey Memorial, uh, a regular contributor to CKNW and Global News, and also a family physician. Berinder, thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Good afternoon, Robin. Thanks for having me. Berinder, what's your experience been like at that hospital? Yeah, so I should be clear, it's been a while since I worked there. So I worked back uh, there as a hospitalist. So the hospitalists are the physicians that once a patient has been admitted in emergency um, that say, you know what, you need to stay in hospital, there's something that's going to take a few days um, or whatever reason you're not safe to go home. Um, the hospital service uh, admits the majority of those hospital to Surrey Memorial. And so that's part of the group I was part of. And this was back in 2016. Now, it was my first um, job out of residency. It was my first job as a physician. I loved internal medicine. I loved hospital medicine. Um, but it really was an experience that I do not look favorably back on. And when we look at all the news that's come out over the last few months, and especially the last few weeks, I think this was all entirely predictable. So you're not surprised at all? Not not in the slightest. Tell me more about your experience. What was it specifically that made you think that these problems are coming up? 
So if we look at the issues that have been identified by um, Dr. Ip and, you know, the maternity doctors that um, raised their concerns this week, it, it's simply um, infrastructure, resource demand, and supply that's offered. So when you look at that and you compound that with all the other issues that have been facing um, the system in the last few years, especially with um, COVID staffing shortages, um, and you know pressure on systems um this is not a system that was readily available uh, ready readily able to absorb that new stress so people were already working at the brink like the the expectations of the physicians was to see way more than that and then they're able to if you look at the obstetrics letter that came out um it says uh the last time um the the birthing unit at um, sorry, Memorial underwent any expansion. That was a decade ago, and that was to accommodate an annual rate of 4,000 deliveries. But now they're actually seeing over 6,000 deliveries a year. And so there, there's a 20% more, or 2,000 more, sorry, uh, deliveries than they have capacity for. So when you see that, what does that lead to? Medical errors. If people are working in a stressed out um, state, there will be errors. And in this case, it's unfortunate that they've identified one death that potentially could have been avoided. Um, but when you have that's the environment someone's working in, if a medical mistake happens, the hospital is not going to protect the physician or the nurse that's involved there. There's going to be a complaint. It'll go to the college and that physician will be held responsible for the failure of delivering care in a setting where they're not able to deliver the standard of care that's uh, that uh, standard of care that they're qualified to or expected to. So there's a double disincentive in working in systems like that. Fraser Health is asking doctors from other hospitals to step up and help out. Is that the solution? So right now there's uh, the, the, the human resources are limited. So I think there are lots of things being done well to try to increase that. We look at recruitment strategies that the province has announced. We've looked at the new uh, you know plan for a medical school that will be at Simon Fraser University. But those are all long-term solutions. Right now, um, the issue that I think primarily is um, one of the biggest issues within um, Surrey Memorial and um, in that region of Fraser Health is that there seems to be an apparent disconnect from the leadership um, and the physicians that are working on the ground. When you have two separate sets of healthcare providers, each uh, having letters that are 36 um, signatories, that's not the first step to engagement. That is the last step of a system that, uh, and physicians and uh, healthcare providers that do not feel they can safely work in an environment. And to me, that represents what the culture of the environment is. And so until that bridge is connected, until there is authentic kind of engagement that's happening and that there isn't kind of um, this, you know, watering down of the reality, um, I don't think that culture is hospitable to recruiting more people. Is it time for a change of leadership at Fraser Health? I'm not in a position to comment on that. I, um, I, I think that everyone, uh, I want to believe that everyone who is in a leadership position is there for the right reason and um, has, the, uh, has the right intent there. But um, I also think that if any of us are in a position of leadership, there are metrics of accountability 
and their metrics of um, a success. And there's a metric, uh, uh, and then there's the non-tangible metrics, which is what is the culture, what is the recruitment, what is the status in the community. And I think that everyone um, should be constantly uh, evaluating their own position and the positions of the people around them to make sure that they're the right people in those positions to respond to community needs. You know, I was asking you about doctors from other hospitals being asked to step up, but look at doctors at Royal Columbia and Eagle Ridge. They're now saying that they're facing serious delays. So this problem is spread right across the region and and at at all facilities. So having other doctors just move around isn't really the solution, is it? Not at all, but um, exactly. It's not a, and it's just not a human resource issue. And I think that's what we need to make sure that we don't lose perspective on, which is absolutely there are pressures. And uh, even when I, you know, put out a few messages on social media about this, people will be like, well, you know, there are demands at every hospital. But I think let's not lose perspective on what's happening at Surrey. They have uh, 33% at least population of South Asians, at least 200, 250,000 people, fastest growing, uh, you know, city. And it's with the South Asians, there's a much higher chance of dying from heart attacks. And uh, they don't have facilities to treat heart attacks in like uh, the standard that's expected from um, any country, let alone first world country. And so you're literally demanding, sorry, relying on people to leave their city to get life-saving care. So are and you... you look at even like the Patolo Bridge right now, what is the accessibility going to be like getting to even over to Royal Columbian over the next year? So are you suggesting there's a crisis of confidence in the healthcare system in Fraser Health? I think there's a crisis of not enough infrastructure that's needed to treat trauma, strokes, and heart attacks. We, in March, we saw that the provinces and the federal government came together to get more health funding. Uh, do you think the province just had to take what they could get? It was better than nothing, and it's not really going to solve the problems that Fraser Health is uh, experiencing? So I, I don't recall, sorry, what happened in March. The funding, uh, funding announcement between the feds and the provinces. Okay. There was more money, sure. but I mean, I mean they had to yeah, take what that, they could get. Health transfer. Yeah. Absolutely. And even today, like there has been an announcement in funding in BC from the doctors of BC and the Family Practice Services Committee, and that's on long-term care, inpatient care, and maternity care, which is some stabilization funding, which I think there's definitely a role that money has because you have to pay people for the quality, uh, you know, for the work, you're going to attract quality people if you pay them at the rates that their skill demands. Um, and there's obviously cost of living, inflation costs, so there's been a natural um, um, hesitancy for people to come out here because um, they could do the work that they're doing and live a more comfortable life in other parts of the province. So I think that that is something that is transcending healthcare into many different sectors, but um, it's a part of the problem. But that won't fix the cultural issues that exist and the community engagement and the confidence in from community that they can safely receive care um, in a non uh, in a kind of an anti-racist equitable manner earlier you said that it's f- quite rare that doctors speak so publicly about these problems uh, and that they often tend to be muzzled are we going to see more doctors come forward with issues about other hospitals in bc well, it seems that there's a, a trend that started. Um, I, I think that everything that happens should be looked at in an individual critical manner. And um, if colleagues have something to say, which has, uh, you know, they have objective evidence of what their reality is, 
I think the culture should be created that allows them to speak, but also in a way that does not um, dissuade people or, you know, misinform the public because often things can become slippery slopes. So I think that while this has been um, the conditions that physicians and nurses and healthcare practitioners are working under is not unprecedented, this level of uh, public engagement, I would say is unprecedented. Um, and I hope that um, that people are being judicious when they use that because it's not something we should do lightly. Okay, Brenda, thanks so much for your time. No worries. You take care. Well, the Vancouver Park Board is getting ready for Pride Month and talking about safe spaces in city-run facilities where sporting events are being held for young people. According to a recent survey, 64% of youth who identify as gay and bisexual have experienced abuse in sport, and it's happened in the form of bullying, assaults, and insults. Now, this abuse puts them at significantly higher risk of suicide and self-harm, and they're playing sports in local facilities run by municipalities. Brennan Bastiavansky is the Commissioner of the Vancouver Park Board, and he joins us now. Hi, Brennan. Hi, Robin. Now, you've been advocating that municipalities need to monitor this abuse. How do you regulate this? Well, it, there's, a, there's a couple of things. So, I mean, people of Vancouver, they ele- we were elected by parents that uh, want their kids to keep them safe when they drop them off at the sports. And uh, so it doesn't just affect uh, rain- rainbow children, um, but that is obviously one of the one of the groups. It also includes uh, other types of racism uh, that can happen um, and misogynistic comments and stuff like that. Uh, and at the moment, there's a lot of focus on uh, what the provincial or federal governments can do. Uh, and uh, you know, you get uh, the the incident in Surrey a couple of weeks ago with the under eleven uh, hockey. You had the MLA get involved and demand like an inquiry and stuff like that. But even now, like a month later. Nothing's happened. There's an independent investigation that no one has any visibility in. And so the focus is actually that uh, uh, when we look at the park board, local government, we're the only people that can actually have any kind of leverage over behaviors that go on in sports. And so when we focus at, you know, the people at the federal or provincial levels, they don't have access to the local facilities. Like they don't control the ice rinks or access to the soccer fields. And so the so local government can get involved and make a difference uh, to make these safe spaces because we control access to the sites. So it's more important that you step in with some sort of a policy. You talked about, um, last night you were at the Park Board meeting and you talked about implementing safe sports officers. How would that work? So the, the role that uh, the local government can play already is about compliance, right? There's all these wonderful tools out there that uh, that are available so uh, parents coaches entourage and so on uh, can understand how to create a safe space the thing that's missing is like the actual incentive to use them and with our partners at via sports uh, the people that actually fund sport in bc uh, they provide wonderful tools on how to be able to identify um, uh, bad behavior uh, within a, a team or, or, or a sport and also guidance on what to do about it and these tools have been around for a while but uh, there, there hasn't been a lot of incentive to use them, and they've not been widely adopted. So and so, can you elaborate on these tools and what they are? Yeah, like a lot of the, uh, like I, I grew up uh, playing sports, and there are certain bad behaviors 
that uh, that we'd be put through as athletes. Uh, you know, you might know the term suicide. It's like a high-intensity sports, like a sprinting drill. And coaches would sometimes use these uh, as a form of punishment. You'd run until you throw up because you lost a game or what have you. And the thing is, is that that's a form of abuse. And it takes the fun out of sports. You know, you've got uh, another example is parents that forget that, you know, that they're, the kids are there to make friends, to enjoy themselves, to get fit. And instead, they're shouting at refs. Uh, they're, they're shouting at players. You know, they're making it an uncomfortable environment. And the people don't necessarily uh, know how to step up. They don't know how to intervene. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to manage the incident. And what, uh, what via sport and some of their tools allow is how do you identify those early, early behaviors and how do you stop them become, before they become completely entrenched? And, and what behaviors uh, do you identify that you just can't let it slide? You know, sometimes you see a parent and they're like, oh, maybe they shouldn't have done that and you don't exactly know what to do. Maybe I'll just let it go this time. Well, that's the kind of um, education that a safe sport officer can provide. You know, you get someone that's doing something that they're not supposed to and it makes people feel uncomfortable. Maybe no harm has actually happened yet, but there are ways to actually intervene. And so a safe sport officer could be a way of um, educating uh, parents, coaches, players, and the, the broader entourage officials on, on how to intervene earlier on. How do you spot the problem before uh, abuse has actually occurred? Okay, you're talking about early on, but what about when parents are in the, in the stands, whatnot? Would you have someone going up and down the stands and saying, listen, that's not appropriate behavior, please refrain from that? No, it's not about like trying to uh, be at every game because, uh, you know, in Vancouver, there's like 50,000 field sports players or participants, right? So it's way too many for anyone to do. But there are tools out there that can educate parents, right? Like if you see somebody, uh, another parent that is, let's just say, sucking the fun out of the game, um, how do they interfere or how do they intervene without actually causing friction or doing it in a way that doesn't make people feel awkward or, or whatever, um, that type of stuff is uh, one of the ways uh, the education on, on those types of matters is how it can be uh, the safe sport officer can contribute. And also when an incident has happened, how do you ensure that, um, you know, an investigation is done properly, uh, what kind of discipline might be appropriate. Uh, there's any number of, uh, of ways of providing a safe and safe environment. But the challenge is, is that most of the people that are involved in amateur and youth sports um, are volunteers. They haven't been trained in it. They don't necessarily know how to spot it. They don't know what to do uh, when something occurs. And that's really kind of the role of the, the safe sport officer is to help ensure that these, um, uh, the people, all the people that are surrounding the sports uh, are aware of how to behave. And then when there is, um, you know, maltreatment or, or bad behavior, that they know how to intervene and know how to speak up in a way uh, that makes uh, the, the, the sport remain fun. What about having a registry to ban people who are abusive? Well, the federal minister uh, for sports, Pascal Saint-Laurent, is looking at um, doing just that. Um, but again, that's at a federal level. The, the real impact that can occur is at the local level. This is a local government problem. Um, because what, uh, what the report uh, that was presented to the park board last night showed was that the vast majority of the incidents that occur of uh, 
psychological, emotional, physical, and sexual violence that occurs happens at local government facilities. They happen at the field, the ice rink, the change room, the, the trainer's room, those kinds of things. And it's having a, it's having a negative effect on sports in general. Like parents uh, want us to be able to just know that their kids are safe when they drop them off at soccer. But one of the knock-on effects of having unsafe sports is like it's, it's actually difficult for, um, for the parents to have uh, volunteers like officiating their games, right? So uh, sports everywhere are, are having a hard time attracting and retaining enough good people that are willing to referee, as an example, because they're still taking abuse from, from fans. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough so. one. I wanted to talk a bit about Pride Month uh, quickly. It's coming up with events like Pride Swim and Eastside Pride. What are the ways that the park board, uh, what are the ways are, are you doing? What are you doing uh, basically to ensure there is safety for participants? Uh, so the, uh, there is a, like the park board is actively creating these safe spaces in the events, in the events that you listed. They're available on, on the, the park board website. And also in, the, in August, uh, they're also helping organize uh, pop-up events and the, and the parade. Uh, so there's, there is a number of uh, spaces that are safe for people that are, um, are involved in the rainbow community. And that sort of, that safe space is also extended to all groups and communities uh, across the city. Okay, Brennan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks, Robin. Are right turn lanes disappearing in Surrey? This was brought to our attention by a Surrey resident who posted on Twitter that she started to see right turn lanes disappearing at major intersections that include 72nd Avenue and King George at all four corners, and that's a major thoroughfare, 88 and King George, 74th and King George, 120th and 72nd in all directions, and multiple intersections along 152nd. Now, this sounds um, like... It's, it's obviously a, a pedestrian safety issue, and that is why we are going to talk to Gant Gottkotru. He's a former police officer with New West and West Vancouver and now a traffic consultant at ForensicTrafficPro.com. Hi, Grant. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Okay, as I mentioned, this is probably about pedestrian safety. How serious does it have to be that you have to you do this and stop the right turns and what would the criteria have to be well if they're if they're talking about pedestrian safety then they're going to have to back it up with some sort of data and uh you know i mean you look at some of the bigger jurisdictions like vancouver and whatnot and they've got proper uh right turn lanes specifically for for reasons that uh, allow for smoother traffic flow. This is not something new, unfortunately. When I worked in New West, uh, um, they they did the same type of gibberish uh, uh, at 8th and McBride and 6th and McBride. They were actually right turn kind of on-ramp kind of turns that they took away, and that just created more mayhem. Um, and I, you know, when it comes to some of these government decisions, I don't think the word poindexters gets uh, used enough when describing some of them. When you, when, the you say, when you say there's yeah. mayhem, what do you mean? Well, it, it, if you take away a right turn lane, you're, you're taking away, um, you're, you're going to create more congestion at an intersection. And uh, um, so it's either going to be, it's either one dedicated right turn lane or they're going to have a straight through and a right turn lane, which which means you're still going to get a backup. 
And and there was already enough of a congestion and road rage problem in the lower mainland that's existed for a long time. And, and when you plug up more holes in the colander, so to speak, uh, it takes a lot water longer for the water to drain. And that's what you're dealing with in these type of scenarios. You're going to create more bottlenecks at major intersections. You're going to have um, increased um, anger issues, increased people taking chances and running yellow lights or red lights or making those hard right turns disregarding um, pedestrians because these cars have been sitting in the intersection now even longer than they used to, if you catch my breath. Yeah, no, that's what I notice when when there is an area where you can't um, make a right turn. I do notice that either people start slowing down because they're confused and they think, oh, wait a minute, maybe I can do it. And that creates a, a potential uh, collision or they do take the chance and do take that right turn. Well, the reality is if, if, if some of the uh, jurisdictions are smart, and what they'll do is they'll have the walk signal start before the light goes green. So it gets the pedestrians into the crosswalk before the cars start moving, which is a brilliant idea. I, ha- I think that's a really good idea. And that's how you deal with it. You don't create more traffic mayhem. And, and quite frankly, I doubt they have the stats to back it up. I think somebody in City Hall probably had some... Uh, Great idea, probably looking for a promotion or a transfer because it doesn't justify. It's going to create more traffic mayhem at the end of the day, not less. But can't you get? Can't you see some residents in the area petitioning City Hall to do that? Well, if they are, then back it up. But but like I said, if 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 they can say, well, the residents, well, that's a lot of times the residents complain about a lot of stuff, and the, the local uh, uh, politicians don't act on it um, unless it's people in their constituencies, which we know. Um, but even that, you still have to back it up with some sort of uh, study or data that demonstrates that this is safer uh, versus uh, creating mayhem. Because that's what it'll do. Because years ago when I worked in New West, um, we had this particular mayor, I won't name her name, uh, in the early 90s that decided that uh, she was going to have the city put in uh, – roundabouts and uh, blocked off streets and you couldn't turn here and you couldn't go there. And in a short while, New West became gridlocked from about 10 in the morning until about five in the afternoon. Anyone who goes through New West knows what I'm talking about. You plugged every hole, you couldn't get out, right? So the idea is to get traffic flowing, traffic moving. Cars aren't going anywhere despite what people want. Okay, Grant, one last question. Aren't left turns worse than right turns for causing well, collisions? Well, it all depends on the intersection and the layout. I think there's just not enough left turn advanced arrows. That, that there exactly. Needs to be That's more. what I'm getting at. Don't we need more of those? Yes. Anytime you have a turn at an intersection where it's a left turn or a right turn, you want to make sure that, that you're allowing it to happen uh, freely and safely. Um, and as I've said multiple times on the Michael Smith show, um, we need uh, stricter rules in giving out driver's license in British Columbia. Yeah, well, that's a whole other topic for another <laughs> oh, day. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, isn't that why graduated licensing was introduced? Um, anyway, yeah, Grant, thank solved anything. <laughs> Grant, thanks so much for your time. Have a My good day. My pleasure. You too. Thank okay, you Grant Gautreto is a traffic consultant at ForensicTrafficPro.com. 
Well, next door in Alberta, they had an election yesterday, and Daniel Smith has won. It was a test of her leadership since taking over the United Conservative Party from Jason Kenney, who left that party in a very unpopular state. Now, the polls suggested it was going to be a tight race with NDP leader Rachel Notley. In the end, the UCP did prevail, but with a majority, that is, and they, but they lost some seats, including those belonging to cabinet ministers. Just to give you some perspective, in the last election, the UCP had 63 seats. Now it has roughly 49 seats compared to the 38 held by the NDP. The NDP apparently picked up 11 new seats, forming the largest official opposition that Alberta has ever seen. Let's bring in Stephen Carter. Stephen has um, obviously been involved in several high-profile campaigns in Alberta. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks for having me on, Robin. I really appreciate it. Yeah, leading up to the the election, uh, I was watching the campaign, and you would hear average voters say, you know, they were going to hold their nose and they were going to vote for the NDP, or they really liked Rachel Notley. And then there were others who said, listen, I'm going to vote for the UCP, but I'm not necessarily voting for Daniel Smith. What happened there? Well, we had a, we had two leaders that were historically unpopular. Uh, Danielle Smith had a 13% approval rating. Uh, you know, Rachel Notley had 15%. Uh, these weren't two people who were coming in, working from enormous, uh, oppor- you know, opportunities for growth. And a lot of the people who were voting were voting against the other party. They were afraid of what the other party represented. And, of course, we are seeing significant polarization here. Yeah, um, I was listening. I was listening to Global National last night, and they were talking about Daniel Smith's low-key campaign in, in the final days. Um, you know, she wasn't even really taking part in the campaign. She took part in a run. Was this a keep her mouth shut approach for by her campaign team? Absolutely. I mean, every time she opened her mouth, it cost votes. I mean, we were seeing, uh, you know, bozo eruption after bozo eruption coming from the leader instead of coming from the. Uh, you know, the backbench. Uh, I mean, there, and, and not to say that there wasn't those bozo eruptions from the backbench either. I mean, it was pretty amazing. We had a, a candidate compare tra- trans children to fecal matter. I mean, it was, a, it was an absolute, uh, absolute nightmare uh, to see. And, and of course, that candidate won with 72% of the vote in her riding. So there's, there's some really, uh, there's some deep reckoning that's going to have to be taking place here in Alberta at some point. Speaking of reckoning, um, Danielle Smith has had challenges within her own party. Are they going to give her a pass now and just forge ahead, or can, can she keep the UCP united? Well, I mean, she didn't. She wasn't able to keep the Wild Rose Party united back in 2013, 2014. Uh, this is the problem with these ideological parties. There, there are some people who wish to be uh, pure to the ideology, and other people who wish to be uh, successful in, in the elect, electoral system. It's going to be very difficult for Danielle Smith to reconcile both of those. She's got Take Back Alberta, uh, which is a uh, third-party advertising group that basically controls half the board of the uh, the UCP at this point. I can't see keeping them happy as well as at the same time keeping uh, you know small C conservatives happy that are looking for good government. The Take Back Alberta group—they're a lot like Donald Trump, right? Uh, and sometimes they would make Donald Trump's win. Uh, they are extremely right wing with uh, with very uh, fringe ideas, and it's it's difficult to imagine um, that people actually voted for a party that was controlled by them. Okay, what about Rachel Notley? Is she going to stay put as the leader of the New Democrats? 
Well, I think right now she is. I think that there's a short-term problem, and that is that uh, the Conservative Party of, uh, you know, the UCP or the Wild Rose or the, the PCs, they haven't gone into the next election with the leader that they had in the previous election since Ralph Klein. Uh, it's been 20, 20-odd years now since, uh, since the leader's actually gone two, two elections in a row. Danielle Smith will face a leadership review, and she, in that leadership review, uh, there's no guarantee that she survives it. This is a very small victory for her. You know, 2,000 votes the other way, and we have Premier Rachel Notley again. Uh, this is kind of unbelievable how tight this race was, and I can't see the Conservatives being particularly happy with that. So if Rachel Notley sticks around, it's probably because they could see short-term chaos right on the horizon. Alberta is a significant neighbor for BC. What kind of a relationship is she going to have with BC's NDP government? Well, I mean, this is a woman who at one point was redrawing our boundaries to take over northern British Columbia uh, so that we would have access to tidewater. So this isn't exactly someone who has a firm grip on interprovincial relationships. So I think that it could be really difficult. Um, She's already decided that she's going to go to battle uh, with Trudeau. Um, I'm not sure that she's going to have the best relationship with David Eby, uh, which is really too bad because I think there's some really interesting experiments happening in in British Columbia uh, around uh, the the opiate crisis that we could really really learn from and work together on. So there's a lot of things that uh, BC and Alberta are related together on, and uh, uh, hopefully Danielle Smith will see the opportunity to work together with David Eby. Yeah, Daniel Smith took aim at Justin Trudeau in her acceptance speech. Does this win in Alberta embolden the federal Conservatives or make them think twice? I think that there's virtually no impact. The truth of the matter is we're going to send most of our MPs back with blue colours on their on their sleeves, uh, regardless of the outcome of this election. Uh, we elect Conservatives out of some sort of hobby almost. So, um, there was no seats to gain for Pierre Polyev here. There's no seats to lose. There's no seats to gain. So he's really best to focus on Ontario, Quebec, uh, and British Columbia uh, for, for potential gains because, you know, out here, he's basically already secured the votes that he's going to require. Definitely. Stephen Carter, thank you so much for your time. Robin, really appreciate you reaching out. If you need to go to the emergency room, there is a website where you can check the wait times. It's called edwaittimes.ca, and I'm looking at it right now. Just to give you some perspective, at Vancouver General Hospital, it's approximately four hours just to see a doctor. Never mind that it could take almost 10 hours by the time you're done. Uh, Same goes for BC Children's Hospital, about a four-hour wait. Burnaby Hospital, three hours. And Surrey Memorial Hospital, about two hours right now. And the reason why I bring this up is because obviously we've been talking about this for weeks now, the issue at Surrey Memorial Hospital. We've had ER doctors present a petition. They've spoken openly about their concerns about safety for patients. Well, Royal Columbian and Eagle Ridge are now adding their voices, I should say the doctors, not the administrators, saying that they're facing severe delays getting patients the help they need. Earlier today, Adrian Dix joined Jody Vance on the Jill Bennett Show and talked about what is being asked of him and the Ministry of Health when it comes to taking care of this situation. Take a listen. Well, I think we have to address it. Certainly Memorial Hospital, I think we've got to address the issue of patient flow. 
meaning what happens when a, a, a patient is admitted to the hospital. Will they have sufficient care on the wards, and can you move them out of the emergency room into the wards and get high-quality care? That's why we right. have to work with hospitalists and internal medicine specialists and surgeons in different cases to make sure that people get the care we need. That's one step. We also have to address all the concern rates because these are our teams. Right? When people talk about Fraser Health, Fraser Health are the doctors and nurses and health sciences professionals, healthcare workers that work in Fraser Health, so we've got to engage with them on the issues that they're raising. And uh, we've been doing that. We're going to continue to do that. Some of those are what you call bargaining table discussions. Others are how do we improve services so that people have the supports they need to provide the care that they need to everyone. Just say, though, as well, that Fraser Health delivered more surgeries, more diagnostic tests, more primary care visits last week than they've ever done before. And that's a tribute to all our healthcare workers and teams. Dr. Chris Hogue is the former president of the Consultant Specialists of BC, and he joins us now. Hi, Chris. Hi there. Chris, Thanks it's so coming. it's so rare that doctors come out publicly and, and, and say that they have issues with the care at hospitals. How did it get so bad, and how did it get to this situation? Well, I think it's, this is a problem that's been a long time coming. Uh, we've, we've had a health care system that's... that's uh, Running on fumes for for many many years, uh, even predating COVID, we we've had a lot of constraints on our healthcare system, uh, and uh, and then COVID arrived, and and uh, that really was the straw that broke the camel's back. We we had uh, uh, this surge of patients in in COVID. We had very difficult working conditions uh, for uh, everybody in the healthcare sector, uh, and uh, and. Um, uh, it it, it uh, finally tipped the balance in a healthcare system that really was hanging on by a thread for many years uh, leading up to COVID. Beyond Surrey Memorial, we're now hearing doctors at Royal Columbia and Eagle Ridge expressing their concerns, saying that they're facing uh, serious delays in seeing patients. Is this now beyond a crisis of confidence in the healthcare system, not just Fraser Health, but but the all of BC? Oh yeah, I, I think that there we people have reason to be concerned. Uh, uh, I think the emergency rooms, as I've said before, are the canary in the coal mine, and and they, when the emergency rooms start experiencing trouble, I think that's a sign of wider trouble throughout the healthcare system. Uh, you know, the, the the reason the emergency rooms see the brunt of it is because the emergency rooms never close. Uh, when patients have trouble accessing care and getting timely care and start having uh, uh, worsening health conditions, uh, the emergency room is always there for them, and, and that's where they go. And so the emergency, emergency rooms will see that crush of patients um, with these declining health conditions because the overall system is not there and functioning well to support them. And the ER is is a place that people may turn to because they don't even have a regular family doctor. So it might be a minor case, not necessarily a major case. Is that a big part sure, of the problem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. certainly the, the the primary care crisis is is a major contributor to the problems in emergency care. Uh, the, the the breakdown in the specialty uh, care system is also a contributor uh, because we have patients that are waiting for referrals to see specialists and can't get in to see them. They have health conditions that their family practitioners uh, feel that they need assistance from specialists to manage, and uh, and yet the patients are having trouble accessing specialist care too. Uh, 
um, because of this uh, basic supply and demand problem that we're facing with not enough physicians to serve the demand uh, that we're now facing. A lot of you doctors are basically saying that it was a ticking time bomb. What was your experience like at the hos- in the hospital system? It's been an increasingly difficult place to work. Uh, over, the, I've been in practice now for 13 years as a surgeon at Lionsgate Hospital. Uh, I, I, in my roles, my leadership roles, I speak to many physicians uh, uh, across the province, and and we, we're all experiencing increasing difficulty accessing care. Uh, uh, accessing the tests we need to work up our patients. Uh, it's very stressful. Uh, you know, I work a lot in oncology, and, and uh, uh, the, the stress of working up a patient who you think probably has a, a cancer, but you can't get the diagnostic tests, you, you, you end up waiting longer for pathology, uh, and, and you, you want to do your best for that patient, and then you have trouble accessing, for, for me, uh, the operating rooms uh, in a timely manner uh, because of the sheer volume of cases and the limit on OR time. So for healthcare workers, uh, and, and that stress transfers to all the nurses too, uh, it's, it's, it's very upsetting. We, we want to be able to provide the care we're trained to provide in a timely manner where we feel that patients aren't falling behind and, and, uh, and, and their conditions aren't worsening. And, and all that stress the patients, of course, feel too. It seems every couple of weeks we see a different group of doctors come forward with issues about Surrey Memorial or another hospital. Are we going to keep seeing this? Well, I hope physicians have found their voice. Uh, so I, I hope physicians are feeling empowered and, and able to speak uh, their truth when, when they're experiencing these problems. Uh, uh, it needs to be heard and, and patients need advocates and that's one of our roles. Okay, Chris Hogue, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m., on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.